Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey, frontline friends, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after years working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real life behind the scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. Today, we're going to have what I think might be the most important conversation of this series on daring leadership. In some ways, it probably responds to questions that have come up for those of you who have been listening along the way. The skeptic voice in some of your minds that says, yeah, Lindsay, this all sounds really nice, but you have no idea how brutal and broken my workplace is. There is no chance I can implement or apply these daring leadership skills where I work. If that's been on your mind and weighing heavy during this series, then this is the episode you've been waiting for. And please believe that I hear you and I will be the first to acknowledge that what we're doing here is no small task and that the hurdles are incredibly high for many of you. The truth is, it would be unfair of me to ask you to move into the brave space of daring leadership without preparing and equipping you, not just for the likelihood, but the promise of hard falls along the way. Brene talks about the arena for a reason. It's not always pretty and it can hurt like hell and we can get pretty battered and bruised in the midst of fighting for being authentic and calling others to walk in the realness of life alongside us. I'm not gonna pretend that this is a walk in the park or sugarcoat the situation, but I am gonna call us to be brave together and be willing to step into some hard and uncomfortable places in an effort to leave a legacy of change. Brene talks extensively in her book, Dare to Lead, about the need for educating people to fall. She compares it to the preparations for skydiving, that before doing your first skydive, you practice falling off a ladder a zillion different ways to make sure that you know how to land safely in varying conditions to reduce injury. It's better to practice this before taking the dive than to be asked to learn once you've already hit the ground. She shares that in her research, as well as within the feedback from those who work within her own organization, many indicate never having learned ever how to have difficult conversations, how to identify and address feelings collaboratively, and how to really drill down and talk effectively and caringly with others about hard topics like failure. She talks about the work within her organization to address this aspect, among the other aspects of daring leadership, within a program that is built into the new staff onboarding process. 
that they have proactively built expectations about falling and failing into the language of their team right from the start. She says this, here's the bottom line. If we don't have the skills to get back up, we may not risk falling. And if we're brave enough, often enough, we're definitely going to fall, end quote. This speaks to the need to be well prepared for the falls and equipped with tools to help us get back up. At the heart of these tools is resilience. And Brene's research identifies three parts to this process, the reckoning, the rumble, and the revolution. Of this process, Brene says this, the learning to rise process is about getting up from our falls, overcoming our mistakes, and facing hurt in a way that brings more wisdom and wholeheartedness into our lives. As tough as it is, the payoff is huge. When we have the courage to walk into our story and own it, we get to write the ending. And when we don't own our stories of failure, setbacks, and hurt, they own us. End quote. So let's start with the reckoning. At its core, the reckoning is about conscious awareness. Remember that the learning to rise process unfolds when things have gone a bit sideways from our intentions and we're in the weeds. Whether it's an outright conflict or hard conversations that need to happen and not be ignored, we're moving into rougher waters here. As we do, emotions naturally come up. It's human and we can't pretend like we're robots. Brene defines the reckoning this way. She says, the reckoning is as simple as that, knowing that we're emotionally hooked and then getting curious about it, end quote. Now, this may sound pretty straightforward, and in theory it might be, but in practice, it's a whole other ball of wax. For many of us, when our emotions show up on the scene, we lack the ability to slow things down and make use of them. If we haven't been taught and trained up in how to recognize, identify, label, and make use out of our emotions, we're likely to ignore them, suck it up and shove them down, or take them out on others, usually in some passive aggressive way that we feel really shitty about ourselves for afterwards. What we're talking about in the reckoning is slowing the process down enough that we can notice, hey, something's coming up here for me. I'm feeling hooked up here. And then wondering, I wonder what that's about. I love that Brene says, it's kind of like thinking before you talk, but it's feeling before you swing or hide. When we're trying to take notice of our emotions and get some clarity on them before proceeding, your body is the messenger. Feelings as they are can take us by storm, especially if we haven't been trained in slowing it down. So if you're needing some clarity on your feelings, your body can be a pretty good herald of what's happening for you. I know that for me, when I am emotionally hung up, my heart races, I get a bit queasy, and my brain goes foggy. Recognizing a pattern of this being my physiological response whenever I'm caught up in emotionally intense situations, I can use this as a cue. That said, your cue will be personal to you, but it will likely be fairly consistent. So take time to reflect on situations where you can think back on consistent physiological indicators 
that might be part of your cue system. When we can use this cue system to help us recognize the moments we're getting hung up in emotions, it gives us an opportunity to opt out of the usual path that we might take of directing our feelings at someone or something inappropriately or reactively. It invites us instead into an opportunity to get curious about our emotions and check them against the situation a bit. And I want to suggest using a tool that Brene shares about called the story I tell myself. This tool has been a total game changer for me, and I hope it can be for you as well. Essentially, this tool allows me to ask myself, what is the story I'm telling myself about this situation right now? And then it allows me to walk through with intention whether that story is legitimate or if I need to check it out with the others involved. Often, the story we tell ourselves is crappy and skewed. And if we let it run unchecked and allow it to influence how we choose to respond in a situation, our response is likely to be exaggerated and off base. Slowing down and getting curious about the story empowers us to be able to decide how we want to proceed. It lets us notice the places where the story gets hijacked by our negative self-thoughts and insecurities, our own fears and vulnerabilities, our past experiences and skewed internal beliefs, and it lets us decide what we decide to allow to influence our responses and what we don't. Here's an example. I personally have a long history of wrestling with the classic imposter syndrome. From early in my childhood, I experienced moments of fear believing that I would be discovered or found out, that I wasn't as smart or as together or as important, and so on and so forth as people thought me to be. I've often struggled with feeling sure that I'm a big fat fake and that at any moment someone will see through the layers of fake and call me out. Now, the thing is, I'm not a big fat fake. And after many years working to undermine those imposter thoughts in my head, I know exactly where those come from and that there are twisty lies. But heck, if they don't still show up sometimes, sneaky buggers. And the place I find it most? Opening emails. Silly, I know. This used to be really hard when I first started in private practice. I would see an email pop up into my inbox, usually with a semi-vague sounding subject line. And my first assumption, the story I would tell myself, was almost always, oh no, I must be in trouble for something I did or didn't do. My heart rate would go up, my stomach would sink, and my throat would tighten. Those are my cues. Girl, you're getting hung up. Growing my familiarity with these and knowing that this is a place these show up has been helpful to be able to actively work at being curious and shifting it. The reckoning for me has been to grow my ability to notice, oh man, that creeped up again real fast. Once I see it, I can work to catch it. I'll take a deep breath and challenge the thought, reminding myself that it has been almost never true that an email is about me being in trouble and that anytime there has been a hard issue that I've always been able to deal with it really well and then open the email to get confirmation that yes, for the 10 bajillionth time, it's a totally neutral email and all is fine. 
doing this on an ongoing has certainly reduced the frequency of times that I have this reaction comparing to when I first started my practice. And the intensity and duration have also been curbed in a big way. Now, when it comes up, it's something I laugh at. Goodness, that thought is still there. What a cheeky stinker. Too bad it's got no power here anymore. The reckoning is really about growing our awareness and slowing things down. A key skill that can be really useful, although largely overlooked, is breathing. Notice in my own example that I mentioned taking a deep breath. We've talked before on the show in our series on mindfulness skills about square breathing. Brene identifies that many of the military groups she works with call this tactical breathing. And it's this specific breathing skill that's intended to slow us down, calm our physiology, and help us regulate in the face of stress. As a reminder, it looks like this. Inhale for a count of four. Hold for a count of four. Exhale for a count of four. Hold for a count of four. Regulating our bodies helps us to make the space to get curious about our emotions rather than get hijacked by them. And it facilitates slowing things down to make conscious choices in how we want to respond to a situation rather than get caught in reacting. That brings us to the rumble. Remember a few minutes ago, we talked about the idea of the story we tell ourselves. Brene says this, the rumble starts with this universal truth. In the absence of data, we will always make up stories. Meaning making is in our biology. And when we're in struggle, our default is often to come up with a story that makes sense of what's happening and gives our brain information on how best to self-protect." End quote. This process happens largely unconsciously and often instantaneously. And notice that it is a story that makes sense of what's happening, but it doesn't need to be true. In fact, our brain so badly wants to just hurry up and complete the story that it will jump to all kinds of places to fill in the gaps and make big assumptions without data to fill those gaps in. Because we tend to go to extremes and make wide assumptions when we're crafting these stories in our minds, Brene calls these stories our shitty first drafts. Yep, that's the technical term, SFDs for short. As a child-friendly alternative, she offers stormy first draft. Our SFDs are heavily influenced by knee-jerk reactions grounded in our own insecurities and fears. She says this, in our SFDs, shitty first drafts, fear fills in the data gaps. What makes that scary is that stories based on limited real data and plentiful imagined data blended into a coherent, emotionally satisfying version of reality are called conspiracy theories." End quote. She identifies that our shitty first drafts are full of conspiracy and confabulation, which is essentially a lie that is told honestly. We create a narrative that feels like it's true, regardless of whether it's actually true. Essentially, we're creating myths, a pinch of truth, a dash of imagination, and a sprinkle of believability. And the reality is that we do it all the time and in all kinds of spaces in our lives, work, marriage, 
friendships, family dynamics, you name it, and we've got SFDs. One of the things Brene says that I think is really valuable is that daring leaders want to know the SFDs. They permit space to hash out those stories we're making up and work to come alongside and reality check these to help fill in the gaps and craft a more accurate story. She also suggests that writing down our SFDs or talking it through with a trusted person in our lives can be helpful to allow us to take a step back from it being caught up in our heads and take a look at it somewhat more objectively. Writing it down or talking it through gives us space to get curious about whether what we've crafted even makes sense or seems accurate considering what we know of the character or values of those involved and so on. As you get curious, Brene identifies three questions we should ask ourselves about our shitty first drafts. Number one, what more do I need to learn and understand about this situation? Essentially, we're asking what do we know objectively to be true and parsing this out from what assumptions we might be making. Number two, what more do I need to learn and understand about the other people in the story? Here we can identify what additional information we may need or questions or clarifications that would help fill in the gaps more accurately. And third, what more do I need to learn and understand about myself? This is the space where we have an opportunity to learn and grow, to get curious about what's behind our responses, to dig into what we're feeling and how that influences our reactions, and to take ownership and be accountable for the part we may have had to play in the situation. This one is a leveled up skill, and it goes deeper than the situation to try to carry personal growth forward and really engages some vulnerability to explore and dig into this. I'm going to include these three questions in the show notes, and I really highly encourage you guys to connect there, copy them and paste them into spaces where you can interact with them more regularly. What more do I need to learn about and understand about the situation? What more do I need to learn and understand about the people? And what more do I need to learn and understand about myself? Can you imagine if we did this? I mean, individually, if we did this, there would be massive payoff, both in being able to be responsive rather than reactive in situations. But collectively, if we as a team or as a workplace or heck as a society, opted into this way of engaging, can you imagine how much more we would learn in the process of challenging moments and the growth that we would see? It's a bit staggering, I think. Brene gives a really great walkthrough of how this can look. She says this, imagine how powerful it would be to catch ourselves making up an SFD, rumble with it for a few minutes, then check it out with a colleague. Hey, tough meeting today. You are quiet and I'm making up that you are pissed off about your team having to do all of the work for the next sprint. Can we talk about that? FYI, if you walked up to me and said that, my trust and respect for you would skyrocket. Let's say my response is, no, I'm not mad at all. I'm exhausted. Charlie's sick and he was throwing up all night, but I appreciate you checking in. This gives you the opportunity to practice empathy. I'm sorry, that's hard. Can I get you a cup of coffee? Now let's walk through the situation of this alternate reply. 
Yes, I'm super frustrated. This is not our project and we don't have the resources to own the work. It's total bullshit. This gives you the opportunity to say, okay, let's sit down and talk about it. It's a win-win. Either way, this is connecting and trust building. End quote. Because Brene is all things practical and actionable, which if you haven't yet noticed is a huge part of what I love about her and her work, she's laid out a roadmap for a story rumble process intended for use within workplaces and teams. I've linked to a worksheet version of these points from her website. I would highly recommend that those interested in bringing her work into their workplaces snag the handout and print it off or just buy the Dare to Lead book, which you can also find a link to in the show notes for this episode. I'm going to share the pieces of the process as outlined in the book. And throughout this process, the goal is to remain curious, working to be a learner rather than a knower. Here's the process. Step one, let's set the intention for the rumble and make sure we're clear about why we're rumbling. Step two, What does everyone need to engage in this process with an open heart and mind? Step three, what will get in the way of you showing up? Step four, here's how we commit to showing up. This is drawing from steps two and three. Step five, let's each share one permission slip. Now, side note, We didn't talk about permission slips in this series, but you can find more on her website. Again, I'll link to some of her resources about this specific piece in the show notes if you want to know more. Step six, what emotions are people experiencing? This is about putting it out there and naming the various elephants in the room. Step seven, what do we need to get curious about? Step eight, what are our shitty first drafts? Step nine, What do our SFDs tell us about our relationships, about our communication, about our leadership, about the culture, and about what's working and what's not working? Step 10, where do we need to rumble? What lines of inquiry do we need to open to better understand what's really happening and to reality check our conspiracy theories and confabulations? Step 11, what's the difference between those first shitty first drafts and the new information we're gathering in the rumble? Step 12, what are the key learnings? Step 13, how do we act on the key learnings? Step 14, how do we integrate these key learnings into the culture and leverage them as we work on new strategies? What is one thing each of us will take responsibility for embedding? And last but not least, step 15, when is the circle back? Let's regroup so we can check back in and hold ourselves and one another accountable for learning and embedding. She finishes this list of trust building, culture shaping questions with this reminder, quote, own the story and you get to write the ending, deny the story and it owns you. If you look at these 15 steps, which I know seem long, but they can happen in actually a fairly short amount of time, depending on the size of the group or team that we're talking about, this process walks us through from start to finish. It takes us from why are we here? What are we all making up? Through how do we hold this space together to have this conversation well? 
we rumble through our various shitty first drafts, and then we come out the other side with awareness of the differences between where we started our shitty first drafts and now what we're learning from each other as we unearth and get curious about these together. From there, it ends with what have we learned here and how do we carry it forward? How do we allow it to shape who we are together? Now that we've talked about the reckoning, which is becoming aware of a problem and our feelings about the problem, as well as the rumble, which is the process of untangling the problem, gaining clarity through curiosity, and bridging connection in the midst of it, that brings us to the revolution. About the revolution, Brene says this, Revolution might sound a little dramatic, but in this world, choosing authenticity and worthiness is an absolute act of resistance. Choosing to live and love with our whole hearts is an act of defiance. You're going to confuse, piss off, and terrify lots of people, including yourself. One minute, you'll pray that the transformation stops, and then the next minute, you'll pray that it never ends. You'll also wonder how you can feel so brave and so afraid at the same time. At least that's how I feel most of the time. Brave, afraid, and very, very alive. End quote. Throughout this series, I've invited the idea of a revolution. I've talked about this effort as our own little rebel alliance working to strategically use our limited resources and troops to take on the great big empire. When we talk about the process of the reckoning and rumble, when we act out of curiosity rather than react out of our own unassessed biases, we participate in revolution. Using our influence, big or small, to chart a path that offers understanding, empathy, care, and connection that values people by allowing them and us to be seen, heard, known, and valued, this is truly revolutionary. Choosing to not stand for the status quo of toxic cultures, choosing to take notice of the impacts on us and others, and advocating for something better, something that supports sustainability, this is the rebellion. Drawing together vulnerability, empathy, trust, and the willingness to rumble grows our capacity to strengthen one another, strengthen the system, and as a result, offer strength and services to the communities we care about. Because we all got into the work out of a heart of care, we are all helpers after all. I hope that you've been able to connect with others within your workplace to support one another in considering the way forward in your unique system. I know that some of the broken pieces are just so very, very broken, and that for some, the processes outlined in this series sound wonderful, but so hard to apply with limited power to influence and shape the higher up, broader problems that leach down. Start with you. Start with your immediate team. Stand united in your valuing of one another and grow from there. Sometimes transformation is quick and other times it's tediously slow, but don't let the pace alter your determination to stay true to yourself and true to the cause of caring for one another. As you journey this process, I would love to hear from you and know what you found helpful or challenging. You can reach out by email or on social media, and you can find all of my contact details in the show notes on our podcast website. 
Please do check out the show notes today for links to some of Brene's free resources mentioned in this episode. They're really helpful. And if you're interested in snagging a copy of the book, you can find a link to that too. Next week, we're continuing in our series on daring leadership and applications in first response and frontline systems. I can hardly wait to share some of the pieces that we have planned. So be sure to join me back here again next week. Until next time, stay safe.